addresses. We're going to be in John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Uh, this is Jesus' farewell speech. Jesus is, uh, Jesus is about to be arrested. He is about to be executed. And so uh, this is his, these are his last words. And actually from John 14, really from John 13 through chapter 17, um, but 14 through 16 are Jesus' uh, farewell Scholars call it the farewell discourse. We don't use words like discourse anymore. These are Jesus' last words to his disciples. Um, he's already told them that he's leaving. He's already told them that one of them is a traitor. He's already told them that his, one of his closest disciples is actually going to deny him. The very disciple Peter who said, uh, I will never leave your side. Jesus says, actually, yeah, you will. You'll be looking right at me when you deny that you even know who I am. Uh, Jesus has said all this uh, in the context of a meal that they're sharing together. And so you can imagine uh, that this room is a mix of emotional turmoil. There's some awkward silence um, as these guys really try to piece together what exactly it is that's going on. Uh, And it's into that moment that Jesus is speaking these words. And I want to remind you just some of the things that Jesus has already promised. Here's what's beautiful about that. Jesus, Jesus does not say, fellas, I'm leaving. It's been fun. You're on your own. He says, I'm leaving, but I'm not leaving you alone. That's really the, that's really the theme of the next two chapters, 14 really three, uh, 14 through 16, that's the theme. I'm leaving, but I'm not leaving you alone. I'm not cutting you off. You're not going to be all alone. And just think about some of the things he's already promised in chapter 14. In verse 2, he says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it weren't so, would I have told you I'd go to prepare a place for you? Jesus says, I'm leaving physically so that I can go and prepare a place for you. For you, a home. That word home, doesn't it evoke some emotions uh, for probably every single one of us? Hopefully, mostly good. When you hear the word home, a place of rest, a, a sanctuary maybe, a place where you belong. Home. Home, what we, what we lost in Genesis 3. We lost our place. Uh, Adam and Eve's rebellion cost us our place. And it's not like it's their fault. We, it is their fault, but it's our fault too. We can't earn that place back. But Jesus is saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you. After all of these years of wandering, you will have a place. And the beautiful thing about that place, Jesus says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm coming back to get you. So that where I am, you will be too. The Bible says some wonderful things about the new heavens and the new earth, about their beauty. Of course, some of those have made it into pop culture, right? Streets of gold, pearly gates, all of those things. And as beautiful as all of it will be, and as wonderful as all of the blessings of the new heavens and the new earth will be, if Jesus were not there, it would still be hell. 
And so the greatest promise that Jesus gives is not just that he goes to prepare a place, but that he goes to prepare a place for us to be together so that where I am, you will be too. And that's, that's the goal, right? What we lost in Eden is not just our place. We didn't just lose a place. We lost a person. We lost an intimate connection with God, severed because of our rebellion. And what Jesus is saying, what Jesus is promising is, I'm going to restore that. This is, uh, this is marriage language. In Jesus' day, um, during the engagement period, what the, what the man would do is he would go and he would get a room ready. And usually what that looked like is he would build a room onto his father's house. So he would actually leave his fiancée and he would go prepare the place. And then the wedding ceremony would happen when, after he got finished, and so, you know, if you're Aaron Shelnut or Steve Tipton, that was a relatively short period of time. You got the place ready and you were done. If it's me, she was wondering, like, is he ever going to come back? And when he comes back, is it going to hold up, right? Um, who did he have to pay to get that built? So the groom or the, the groom-to-be would prepare the place, and then there would be this procession through town, a parade almost, as the groom would make his way to uh, the bride's home, where, to her parents' home. And they would be married there, and then they would leave together to go back to the place that the groom had prepared. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'm going away to prepare the place, and I'm going to come back, and I'm going to get you. And we're going to be together. And so everything that we lost is going to be restored. Everything that we forfeited, God brings back. And if you think about this, everything, because we've had a, a particularly difficult um, couple of weeks as a country, but we've even had a particularly difficult couple of weeks as a church family. Um, loss through death. Uh, one of our own now is waiting in a waiting room to see if her dad is going to make it out of, uh, is going to make it out of surgery. He's going to survive. And so, Listen to this. Everything that rocks your life and everything that rocks our world is a result of that rebellion. Right? Even, look, the, the reason that I yell at my kids is because God is not here yet. The reason that you're snippy with your wife is because God is not here yet. But Jesus says, all of that will be made right. Uh, it's beginning to be made right now in the life of the church. There's a reason that, um, that we repent of sin and we want to see sin dealt with. But there's a day when, we, when sin will be dealt with finally and fully. And we will be with God and He will be with us. We will have our place and we will have our Lord and all will be made right. That is what Jesus is promising. So he's saying, I'm going to get that ready, and then I'm going to come back and get you. And then he says, the way that you get there is me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I don't just prepare the way. I don't just lead the way. I don't just show you the way. I am the way. If you want to get, uh, if you want to get home, if you want to get to the Father, you've got to come through me. You've got to trust in me. That's all that Jesus has been promising. Uh, and wouldn't that be enough? I mean, if Jesus just left it right there, 
if Jesus had just said, all right, guys, I'm leaving, but don't worry. I'm going to go prepare a place. Y'all just sit tight. Float here until I come back, and you know I'll be on the cruise ship, and it'll all be great. right? So just hang tight. Hang on. I'll be right back. And that would probably be enough, right? There are some rewards that are worth every trial. There are some finish lines that are worth everything that the course can throw at you. And, and Jesus is that reward. That would be enough. That would be enough for me. But Jesus doesn't stop talking. Jesus keeps going. It's like an infomercial. But wait, there's more. Jesus keeps going. So we're going to read verses 12 through 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these words of promise. God, would you help us to unpack them now? Help us to to discern what it is that they mean so that we would grow in our understanding of who you are and what you've called us to be. Lord, would you open up uh, open up our eyes, open up our ears. Would you bless the reading, the hearing, and now the preaching of your word for our eternal benefit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In these two verses, Jesus really gives two promises. And they're this. First, Jesus promises to continue his work. So he doesn't just say, fellas, sit tight. I'll be right back. Uh, he says, guess what? You're going to keep going. There's more to do. In fact, not, not only is there more to do, but you're going to do it. And you're going to do it even better. Qualifications. You're going to be greater. Your works will be greater than even what you've seen me do. We're going to figure out what in the world Jesus means when he says that. So Jesus promises to continue his work. And Jesus promises that we will have continued access. That not only... We're not... He doesn't just kind of, um, so this is what happened when the, the very first time I mowed the grass. Um, I had just gotten Super Mario Brothers 2 on the original Nintendo for my birthday. I was eight. And, um, and so I was doing what I did most Saturdays. I was playing Nintendo in, the, in, the, in our playroom in the basement. And, um, and Dad came in and let me know it was time to start learning how to mow the grass. So we went out to the backyard and he... He, he mowed a couple of rows with me, showing me how to turn the mower, showing me how to overlap, all those kind of things that, that I was supposed to do. And then, uh, and then he left. He went to go work on some other project. Uh, and so I mowed another couple of rows and uh, thought I had the hang of it, so I went back inside to play my video game. He had, he had left without this clear instruction that he came back with much later. Um, the laundry room door swung open a lot faster that second time. Um, and he was like, you don't leave until you finish the job. Oh, finish the job. Oh, 
So you want me to stop playing the video game. Um, Jesus, Jesus doesn't leave us. He doesn't just leave us a task and say, good luck. Hope that goes well. He also promises access because it's really his work that he calls us to do and he gives us his power to do it. We have access to him in prayer. So Jesus promises to continue his work and he promises that we will have continued access to him through prayer. Let's, uh, let's look at these, what these mean for us. The first promise, first, uh, verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Let's just recap some of what Jesus, what we've seen Jesus do in this gospel, right? I mean, one of the things that come to mind, he's turned water into wine. Uh, he's restored a blind man's sight. He's, um, he's caused a paralyzed man to be able to walk again. He fed over 5,000 people with just a few loaves of bread. He brought Lazarus back from the dead after four days. Jesus says, all the works that I do, you get to do. What in the world? So why am I not turning water into wine? That would be a pretty lucrative uh, gift to have. Um, What does Jesus mean when he says we're going to do the works that he does? There's a couple things I want to point out. First, notice, notice who this applies to. Jesus says, truly, truly, most solemnly, listen up. Whoever believes in me will do the works I do. Whoever believes in me. Whoever. Not, not just these first apostles. This is not just a promise for them. Not just pastors, right? Not just missionaries. Jesus says that this promise applies to everyone who is connected to him by faith. Whoever believes in me will do my works. Will do the works that I do. And so that means that Whatever works, and we're going to talk about that in a second, whatever those works are, that doing Jesus' works is a normal part of the Christian life. It's not for a select few. There are, no, there are no rangers or marines or special forces in the kingdom of God, right? There's no elite. Like, oh, the special work is reserved for these guys and the rest of us are just, you know, the grunts, right? There are no elite in God's family. There's Jesus... And then there's everybody connected to Jesus. And the beautiful thing is everyone um, is promised that we will follow in Jesus' footsteps. So what are we talking about? What kind of works are we talking about? Um, And to answer that question, we have to ask another one. What exactly has Jesus been doing? What has he spent his life doing? What are Jesus's works. Look ahead, uh, look back rather, uh, at the end of verse 10, Philip, one of the disciples, asked this question. He says, uh, show us the Father and it's enough for us, right? Show us, show us God. And Jesus says, Philip, have I been with you so long? Don't you know that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so Jesus is trying to convince and Remind, because he said this to them before, his disciples, that he and the Father are the same. They're the same being. They're two distinct persons, Father and Son, but they indwell each other. 
And so uh, to have access to and to see the Father means to have access to and see the Son. And this is what Jesus says in verse 10. Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me? The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. There's that, first, there's that word works. Then in verse 11, believe me, trust me, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. There's works again. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, believe what I'm saying. You're listening to me talk, so listen to my words and trust me. And if the words aren't enough, look at my works. Don't, so not just what I'm saying, but also what I'm doing. And what I've been doing this whole time is pointing people back to the Father through myself. See, that word works is more than just miracles. John uses a different word for miracles in his gospel. And so when we read works, I think we're, I'm, at least I'm prone to think, okay, Jesus is talking about miracles. He's saying that his followers are going to do miracles. That's not, that's not quite it. Jesus' works applies to more than just his miracles. It applies to his ministry as a whole. And what was Jesus doing in his ministry? He was doing things that pointed people to himself as the way to salvation to God. Think about, and we've talked about this before, think about even just the miracles, right? Every miracle that Jesus did, all the big ones that Jesus does in this gospel are signs, right? They're, they're pointing to something else. They're not just they're not just raw acts of power. For instance, when Jesus provides bread for the hungry crowd, uh, for over 5,000 people, he doesn't just provide bread, but then he goes on to say that I am the bread of life. He goes on to say, it's not just enough that you have your fill. It's not just enough that your stomach will be satisfied because it's going to be empty again. I made bread for you so that you can see that I am the real bread for you. That in order to have real life, in order to have eternal life, you have to eat me. He says that. You have to eat me. Right? When he raises Lazarus from the dead, when he brings Lazarus, Lazarus back from the grave, he goes on to say, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever lives and believes in me will not perish but have eternal life. What's he saying? Yeah, that's great. I brought Lazarus back from the dead. Lazarus is going to die again. He's going he's, he's to have to die twice, right? But if you believe in me, then you will never die. Even though you die, you will live. Even though Lazarus will die a second time, he will live forever because Lazarus believes me. And so even Jesus' miracles are not just displays of power meant to convince people. They're signs. Uh, an easy way to, to describe this, well, we'll get, we'll get to that in just a second. Um, we'll, we'll keep working our way down. So Jesus' works are more than just miracles. His whole ministry was pointing people, drawing people to himself. They're meant to lead people to trust in him for salvation. And so what Jesus is saying is, Whoever trusts in me will also do works that point people back to me. He's not saying, listen, you're going to get to turn water into wine. It's going to be great. That, that sign is reserved for Jesus. But he is saying, your words and your life 
will point people back to salvation in me. You're going to do the same work that I've been doing. Uh, since being in Chilton County, I've learned, uh, I've learned how to identify a few trees, uh, which is probably not all that impressive to most of you, but I can now tell the difference between a peach tree and a pecan tree. And not just when they bloom. I can tell the difference between them. I've hauled enough pecan tree limbs out of my yard to know, to never forget what a pecan tree bark looks like. Um, Right, but you can tell what, what the tree is, not just by the flowers, not just by the fruit, but by the leaves on the tree. I can even tell what a pecan tree is and a peach tree is. I can tell the difference by the bark on the tree. All of those things point back to the nature of the tree. What Jesus is saying is, if you believe in me, the whole of your life will point back to me. That you will speak and you will do things that will lead people to know who I am. They, you will lead people to know who God is in Jesus. You will do the works that I have been doing. And greater works than these. Greater, this is where we get our word mega. Uh, we will do mega works. Does Jesus mean that we're going to be to do things more powerful than he did them? I don't know that you or I will be able to top raising Lazarus from the dead. And so that's not probably what Jesus means. Paul will go on to say later in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 12 that not all Christians have the same gifts. Some in Paul's day had miraculous gifts. Some didn't. And that was okay. They weren't all the same, nor were they supposed to be. So Jesus is not promising that all Christians will do miracles. What does Jesus mean? Well, he qualifies it. He says, you will do greater works than these because I am going to the Father. Jesus says, you're going to do better works because I'm leaving, because I'm going to the Father. How does Jesus' going to the Father, what does that have to do with us doing greater works? Well, think about how Jesus goes to the Father. What does he have to do to get there? He has to be crucified. He has to die. He's buried. And he rises again, right? The empty tomb. And then he ascends back to heaven. So in other words, Jesus, Jesus has to finish the job, right? By going back to the Father, the fact that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father means that he has completed the work. God has put his stamp of approval on it, and it's done. And so Jesus is saying, you're going to do greater works because I've finished the job. Now this is where we're going to get into some deep weeds here, but let's just think through this. Everything leading up to the cross is just a promise. I don't mean that in a light way to say that God's promises are slight, but until Jesus finishes the work, everything is just waiting in anticipation. Even Jesus' ministry only pointed to Jesus' work, right? To Jesus' finished work. So until Jesus goes back to the Father, the work is not done, the promise is not kept. Um, there's been a sign for over a year now on Highway 145, there has been a sign that says the site of our new hospital. And when that sign was first put up, right, what, what stood behind it was just trees and a broken down trailer. 
Uh, but then not too long after that sign, right, the trailer was cleared off, the trees were cleared off, the land started being cleared, then the construction company moves in. All the while, that sign's still there. The banner's still there. It says, the site of our new hospital. And then the building is going up, it's getting finished, and you could even, I've gotten to tour uh, the new hospital. Uh, I've gotten to see what rooms are supposed to be what before all the, before all the finishing is done. It's a great thing to be able to say, we're going to have our own new hospital. And in just a few months, you'll be able to take someone there to get help. That's a great thing to say. How much greater, how much better when you can actually walk in the door and get the help you need? So it's one thing to say, to point people in a direction. But until the reality comes to pass, and after the reality comes to pass, then it's really greater. And so that's part of what's going on when Jesus says, I'm going to the Father and you're going to do greater works, is you're going to have the ability to point backward to what I am going to finish at Calvary. You are going to, you are going to work because my work is finished. And so you're going to have the ability to point people back to the finished work of Jesus. But there's another, there's another thought at work here. There's something else going on. When Jesus goes back to the Father, it's as if he's going back to the command center to oversee the rest of the mission. Right? Jesus' ministry was really pretty limited. Geographically, it was limited. It happened in Palestine. Right? Uh, Time-wise, it was limited. It happened um, from, it really, if you just want to count the three years of his ministry, from somewhere between 27 A.D. to 30 A.D., somewhere in that window. So it's limited geographically, it's limited chronologically, um, and it's limited in its scope. I mean, he, he worked primarily with 12 guys, and when he finished up, right, or when he was, when he was on the cross, where were the guys he worked with? They were gone. They were in hiding. So if you were just going to look at, at, at the impact of Jesus on history based on his ministry, his physical presence on earth alone, you'd have to say, Man, he just really didn't accomplish a whole lot. But when he goes back to the Father, when he's finished the work that he came to do, he now gives the greater work to those who follow him. The impact of Jesus outlasts his presence on earth. Because now, where does Jesus work? In almost every country on the planet. So so he's no longer limited geographically. He's no longer limited chronologically. Jesus has been at work since 30 AD. He's been at work through his people. And he's no longer limited in scope. There are more Christians now than there ever have been in in, in the course of human history. When Jesus says in Matthew 28, make disciples to the ends of the earth, it's happening. There, there, I think I'm right in saying there are more Christians in China now than there are in the United States. Um, there, is a, there is a resurgence of gospel belief in the Middle East in closed countries. People who have grown up as Muslims... Uh, are hearing the good news of Jesus and coming to be saved. Jesus is doing greater works through his disciples every day. That's not a, 
that's not Jesus, you know, sitting there beating his hand on the pulpit saying, guys, get off your duff and get to work. That's Jesus keeping his promise. Jesus is doing and continuing to do greater works through those who believe in him. Jesus is at the command center, and he's sending his troops out all over the world. And the task is still unfinished, but we have been given greater work to do. And so what does that, what does that mean for us? It means that the Christian life is not a life adrift. It is not a life without purpose uh, and meaning. But the normal Christian life, not just, not just the Christian life for the elite, right, whoever those elite, we think those elite may be, not just, you know, Jesus doesn't have special ops, right, um, that the normal Christian life is a life full of meaning and purpose, that we have been given Jesus' works to do. We get to, we are promised that we will follow in his footsteps, and as we do, that he will do greater works through us as we point people back to his finished work. It's kind of a tall order, isn't it? It's a lot of pressure. Imagine, imagine, if, uh, imagine being back when you were in elementary school. For some of you, that's not too far. You're still there. Um, but imagine being given a school project to do, right? That uh, Imagine... <laughs> I remember having to make a, a model of, uh, of, of DNA, right? Imagine being given a project to do, but your teacher gives you no resources to do it whatsoever. Here's your project. Go figure it out. Do your best. That's not what Jesus does. Look at what Jesus says in verse 13. And it's connected to verse 12. So this is about the works that he has called us to, that he's promised we will do. He says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Can you imagine, whatever project it is you're set to, can you imagine having the resources of the wealthiest, smartest, strongest, most beautiful, most well-connected people on the planet. Right? Making a, making a model of DNA would not be hard at all if you just had the right resources. And Jesus says, I promise you better than that. I promise that as you walk, as you follow in my footsteps, you will have continual access to me. Right? You've got radio link to the, to the command center. You won't lack anything. I mean, listen to the scope of, of Christian prayer. He says, whatever you ask, if you ask me anything, I will do it. I mean, think of the staggering promise, the staggering scope of that. The limits to my prayer are not, are not with the provider. The limits to my prayer are often with me. It's not that I'm asking too much. It's usually that I just don't ask enough. James says in his letter, you do not have because you do not ask. And let's be honest, I, I usually don't 
pray until it's a last resort, right? Uh, the way I typically think is, all right, I'm going to exhaust all my gifts, all my abilities. I'm going to work as hard as I can and try as hard as I can. And only when I've reached the end of my rope, then am I going to pray. Uh, as uh, one of our elders, Paul Connor, says, uh, jokingly, oh, prayer, has it come to that? Right? We, we usually don't pray until all of the steam is run out, until the gas is completely out of the engine. Contrast this with a couple of, uh, of past Christians. John Bunyan lived in the 17th century, wrote the book, uh, The Pilgrim's Progress. He says this, you can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. You can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. Oswald Chambers wrote the book, My Utmost for His Highest. Prayer does not equip us for greater works. Prayer is the greater work. Jesus doesn't just set us on course and say, good luck. He says, ask me. Ask me, and I will open the floodgates of heaven. Whatever you ask, that's how broad and great the promise is. And there's the condition, right? He says, whatever you ask in my name. Now, so does that mean then that as long as I put in Jesus' name at the end of my prayer, that that's going to happen, right? So I want Alexis in Jesus' name. Is that what Jesus is saying? Is that what it means to pray in Jesus' name? Is, is, is Jesus' name somehow a, a magic spell, right? That as long as I use the magic incantation, all will happen for me as, as I desire for it. Of course not. Here's what it means. Here's at least two things it means to pray in Jesus' name. One, when we pray in Jesus' name, it means that Jesus is the one who carries the prayers into the throne room. We do not have access on our own. He is our access. He is the one that carries us into the throne room and presents our request to God. We pray because He has opened for us the way. He's the one who brings us in. And so when we pray in Jesus' name, what we're saying is, I need Jesus in order, in order to even be in the family. I need Jesus to help me pray my prayers correctly. But here's a second thing that it means. It means when we pray in Jesus' name, we're praying for what his name stands for. It means that our wills need to be aligned with his will. We pray, we ought to pray for what Jesus prays for. What does Jesus pray for? What is Jesus' will bent to? Just look at his life. Just John's gospel. What does he say repeatedly? I haven't come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Repeatedly. I'm here for the Father. I'm here for the one who sent me. Even right here in this passage. So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Jesus' Jesus's will is bent towards the glory of the Father. The glory of God. And so when we pray in Jesus' name... We are praying 
for God to be glorified. We are praying that God would get the glory. Does that, does that frame your prayers? Think of, the, think of the first parts of the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. All of those are mission, kingdom, God-centered prayers. That's what Jesus is, that's what Jesus is talking about right here. Could it be that the reason I'm frustrated in prayer is that I'm not asking enough? And I'm not asking enough for what would bring honor and glory to God. I mean, am, am I, are you, am I afraid of being disappointed? I mean, do we, do we just pray? I'm not, saying that this is, I'm not saying that this is wrong. I'm not saying that it's, we should pray. We should pray for George White. That, that, that God would use the doctors to bring healing to his leg and stabilize his body. We should pray for his healing over the next few weeks. That's incredibly, incredibly important. I think Jesus covers that in the Lord's Prayer when he says, when he talks about our daily bread, that God provides those physical needs. But why don't we step outside of that? Why don't we lean into Jesus' promise here? Why don't we pray what Jesus prayed, that God would bring the kingdom? Why don't we pray what Jesus prayed, that God would hallow his name in my own life, in the life of my family, in the life of our church? Is it because we're afraid we'll be disappointed? I mean, it's easy to pray that the doctors would really work, would really work something miraculous. Because if, you know, if it doesn't happen, okay, no, it didn't happen. You know, we kind of, we kind of soft sell it a little bit, right? We're... I'm going to be disappointed, so I'm just going to pray for the small things. But what if we were in the practice of praying for the great things, the greater works? What if we really leaned into what Jesus promised here? You've got greater works to do. And whatever you ask, I'm going to do it. Whatever you ask in my name, I, not anybody else, I will do it. I will bring it to pass. Let's lean into that. Let's pray for more, not less. And let's let the more need to be defined by what Jesus says here. So let's bring it all together. Jesus gives us, promises us really greater work. He promises us access. And in that, he promises us joy. Jesus says, you're not alone. And you're not adrift. I have purpose and joy for you beyond your imagination. I will do more than you could ask or imagine. Who is that for? Who is that promise for? It is for everyone who believes. It is for everyone who trusts in the finished work of Jesus. And those promises, they're limited in this way. They are not given to everybody. They are given to those who find their purpose and joy in Christ alone. If that's not you, I invite you to him and know a purpose and joy beyond anything you could ask or imagine. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful that you don't leave us adrift, that you don't leave us alone, but that you have been working, you have been at work, Lord God, from the beginning. You've certainly been at work since you ascended to heaven and you sent out those first believers. 
and the work has only grown. And your fame has only become greater and greater. Oh, Lord, would you help us to live for a fame and a name greater than our own? Would you lead us into the greater works that you have for us, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, the the works that you prepared beforehand for us that we should walk in them? Oh, Lord, give us the strength to walk in them and help us to ask for more. To ask for more. So that we would not be disappointed, but overjoyed to see your kingdom come and your will done on earth as it is in heaven. We ask it in the powerful and matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.